The pantheon of Australian authors of books for children is happily quite a crowded place. But our guest on The Year That Made Me today is someone who indisputably has pride of place in that pantheon, the much-loved writer Paul Jennings. When the Children's Book Council of Australia gave him the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2019, it cited his more than 8 million book sales worldwide and that Paul has been voted favourite author more than 40 times by Australian children, winning every Children's Choice Award. He wrote iconic titles like Unreal, Uncanny, The Gizmo, Don't Look Now and, of course, Round the Twist, which also became a hugely popular TV series. Paul's latest book is called The Lorikeet Tree and it's quite different from those other titles and it tackles themes of death and family separation. Paul Jennings, welcome to The Year That Made Me. Thanks, Julian. It's lovely to be with you. Paul, uh, your latest book deals with the theme of the separation of parent and child. Through that lens, I wonder if you could tell us about your childhood and your relationship with your parents. Yes, perhaps. Sure. Well, I was born in England in 1943, which uh, was a couple of years before the end of the Second World War. Yeah. I lived there with my parents and my grandmother uh, until the age of six when we came to Australia. I remember England quite well. I remember the effects of the war on the family. We lived over the road from a, an aerodrome, Heston Aerodrome, yeah. and uh was obviously a site of uh, or the target of a lot of bombing during the war. And uh, I can remember playing in a bombed-out house just over the road. My mother always said, you, you can't go to that house, Paul. You're not allowed in that bombed-out house. Mm. I, I went in one day with some of the boys and my mother came over and uh, one of the boys said, your mum is looking for you. And I said, tell her I'm not here. Uh-oh. And uh, he came back and he said, I told her, you said you weren't here. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was led back by the ear. Uh, but I recall the Americans were still coming to the airport there in their big trucks, Chevy Blitz wagons. They would throw out a piece of chewing gum of the likes which we did not have in England and uh, a crowd of kids would fight for it. And I was too small to have a chance. But... Uh, <laughs> So what was it like then, Paul, to leave that world and to come by boat uh, to live in Australia? It was a really big thing. I mean, I was incredibly excited when I heard. And um, my favourite book at the time was Rupert Bear, who used to go on these mm. trips and have great adventures with hot air balloons and mad scientists and pyramids and all sorts of things. And I imagined Australia was going to be like that. So I was very excited. I have to say I was quite disappointed when I landed at Princess Pier in Melbourne. It was just like England and uh, <laughs> I, I was a bit disappointed. But on the psychological side, it was quite sad in a way because my grandmother didn't come. She was meant to come with us. And on the night before the boat sailed, she had a dream that uh, she died on the boat and she said she wouldn't come. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we left without her, and I really loved her. So she didn't come, and the cat didn't come, and my Aunt Bessie didn't come. And my mother said, uh, it's a huge thing we're doing, and it'll be scary, but we're not going to give in, and we're never coming back. And I've read, Paul, that you've described yourself as a fairly lonely boy, uh, and that 
That also, however, opened up the world of reading to you. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that loneliness and also your relationship with your parents. I think right from the beginning, I did feel that I I somehow didn't belong with the sort of groups and so on. And Mm. uh, I remember my first day at school in England, uh, the teacher asked us all to draw a circle on the blackboard and I, I did my best at a circle and she came up and she said, that's an oval. And she was quite cross and it's not a circle. I'd never heard of an oval. And at playtime, the kids were all running around and playing and I was just sitting there on the side and I thought, I don't like this. And I went home. Not long after, there was a knock on the door and I was taken back to the school. And the teacher told me off and she took me out the front. She said, tell the other girls and boys that you're very sorry and you'll never do it again. So I said, I'm very sorry I ran away, boys and girls, and I won't do it again. But I thought, she's making me lie. I'm not sorry. I'm, I really wish I didn't didn't have to be here. Mm. And I guess that sort of feeling has in, inhabited me all my life in a way. And people would probably be surprised to hear me saying that because, um, you know, I did work as a lecturer and uh, given talks and conferences and seminars and uh, been in the public eye a bit, but inside I I don't actually feel like that. And mm. um, also being the only English boy in the school, the other kids would say I spoke funny and uh, I got an Aussie accent really quickly <laughs> and uh, my mother s- said, Oh, you sound so common now. (laughs) (laughs) On The Year That Made Me, we're speaking with much-loved author of many books, including, of course, children's books, Paul Jennings. Paul, millions of readers have known Paul Jennings as an author for their entire lives, so they might be surprised to know that you were 42 when your first book of short stories, Unreal, was published back in 1985. Uh, The year that you've chosen as the year that made you was long before 1985. What year have you chosen and why? Well, I've chosen 1962 because uh, that was the second year I I spent in teachers' college in Melbourne. Back in those post-war days, they were short of teachers and you could go to teachers' college without doing year 12. I went after year 11. I I struggled a bit with it. I, I did get through okay and at the end of the second year... I think because uh, I was the president of the Christian Association in the college at the time, in those days I was quite devout. Anyway, the vice principal asked me to come to his office and he said to me, we've got this class of about 15 children in what's called an opportunity grade. They all have learning difficulties. They're a special grade within the school. It's a bit of an experiment. And we thought you might like to teach in it. Well, he said take your time and come back and tell tell me. Well, my, the English lecturer there, he, he got wind of it. He was a man I really respected. Anyway, he called me in his office and he said, don't do it, Paul. Don't accept it. Don't waste your talent on those kids. And uh, I was a bit taken aback because, firstly, that he thought I had any talent. <laughs> and uh, secondly, uh, it was against everything that I'd been brought up to believe to think that uh, you were wasting time on people who are more vulnerable than yourself. And um, so I accepted and it really changed the direction of my life. And when I taught those children, it was difficult. 
it wasn't a great idea to put them in a class that was separate uh, because the kids were stigmatised and the other children would tease them. And uh, I used to let them come and have their lunch inside because they were so sort of nervous about other kids calling them names. In the first week or so, some people from the psychology guidance branch came out to see me and I could tell they were aghast that someone who was 18 had no special training and hadn't even taught before, was put in charge of these children. They spent a little bit of time talking with me and then when they left, one of them said to me, look, if you can find a book that every child in this class can read, like a book for each one and want to read, you will achieve something. And Mm. I really took that on board because it was a problem and if the book's too hard and the child doesn't want to read it, they just fall further and further behind. I could find a book they could read, but finding a book they wanted to read, because, you know, you can't grade five or six level, you can't give them a book that looks like it's a grade two book. Yeah. And um, basically, that challenge has taken me right right through till today, really. And I did my matriculation at night school. Then I did a bit of training in special education within the department. And then uh, I got a scholarship to train as a speech pathologist, which was fantastic. As far as the acquisition of language and learning in children, it's, uh, it's a wonderful course to do. I did more study at Monash and I became a lecturer. I was still facing this problem with my students of getting a book for each kid. And one of my own kids was having a bit of trouble reading and I, I got him one of these remedial readers. He was sitting there reading aloud through the, in front of the fire and he, he suddenly threw it across the room and had tears in his eyes. He yelled out, I'm sick of these piddly little books. Mm. And uh, I picked it up and I thought, yeah, I should be ashamed of myself, you know. All the kids of his age are reading books with hardly any pictures in and close type and uh, this looks like a book for younger kids, but not only that, there's no really story in it. And I thought, I'll have a go. I think I could write a better story than that. So, <laughs> And that the, took the, the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> yes, by that time I was 40. <laughs> wow. Uh, Paul, it's amazing to hear the experiences and the, the passion and commitment uh, and thought that go, has gone into your writing and the care for young readers and young minds that it informs it. You've obviously built a, a career writing, engaging, accessible fiction. Your memoir, Untwisted, uh, which was released last year, involved writing in a, a very different way. The first line of your memoir says, my marriage had come to an end and there I was, suddenly a single father with four young children living in a dilapidated house perched on the edge of a wild cliff. I wonder if you could speak to us a little about the tough times that you've had and what you've drawn from going through them and also from writing publicly about them. I, I, I guess me and the four kids living together, it was a bit of a shock when uh, when my wife and I split up. I was pretty upset and so was my wife, of course, and um, I was angry too. And um, the visiting rights were proscribed that you, you had, you know, every second weekend and after school holidays or whatever. Mm. And um, I enforced it fairly rigorously. If I look back, I had to be ashamed. I was 
not very generous and say, no, it's not your Saturday. Then my sister was visiting one day and uh, she, she'd written a book about step families and uh, she's a sociologist. And she said to me, Paul, the visiting rights are the rights of the children, not the rights of a parent. And you should be letting them go whenever they want to. As soon as she said that, I knew she was right. And mm. I agreed to that. And it, it made life a lot better for everybody. Uh, also, I'd started work very early on a master's degree. I said to my boss, I, I said, I can't go on with this master's degree. I, it was by research. I had to do a lot of testing of children and have traveling around. And he said to me, well, you'll be finished if you don't get your master's and then go and do a PhD. You'll have no future here, Paul. You know, Deacon will be wanting to get rid of people who don't have a PhD. And uh, he said, is there anything else you think you could do that would, would support you? And I said, well, I'd love to write books. You know, I've, um, I said, well, there's there's a course in Melbourne I'm aware of, but it's in working hours. And uh, Carmel Bird, well-known novelist, was a teacher at the time. He said, well, look, keep it under your hat, he said, but I'll give you an institute car and you can go down there once a week and do that course. And um, and I remember the first day there, um, Carmel told us to go away and write a short story and she'd give us her opinion on it. Well... I'd written academic stuff before, but I'd never written fiction, and uh, I was really nervous about it. I was really, really nervous. Anyway, I wrote a story, and the next week she put them all down on the desk, and she said, look, they're all good. And she said, I'm going to read one out, uh, which I think is particularly good, and I'm thinking, oh, please let it be mine, you know. And it was, and uh, she read it out, and then as we left the class that day, she just leaned over and whispered in my ear, you're good. And that's what I needed to hear, really. I mean, I... Mm. So, a little bit uh, of assurance and that, reassurance and encouragement was obviously critical. Yes, and it reminds us that as teachers and parents and so on, the kids have various talents and things they're interested in and telling them they're good and making the opportunity for them to shine in that area is very important. Mm. Paul, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you for the year that made me. Just before we finish, I wonder if you could tell us what it is that you hope your readers, your young readers experience. The first thing I would want is that they had a good time reading the book and it helped them on their journey of reading and to to love books and to love reading. But I would also, I guess as a major thing, like them to take away from stories and the type of stories they are, that you are not alone in the world and that there are other people like you and uh, with a bit of help you can get through the worst things that happen. Be assured that it's happened to other people and there's help there. Well, Paul Jennings, thanks again for being part of the year that made me. And we always finish up this segment by asking our guests to nominate a piece of music to go out with. What shall we finish with today and why have you chosen it? I'd like to finish with a rather sentimental song, uh, Hi Lily, Hi Lily, Hi Low, or otherwise known as A Song of Love is a Sad Song. And um, it has some meaning for me. I guess my latest book actually is about some children whose father is dying and it 
my own experience uh, comes into the book, of course. And my, my own mother died nearly 50 years ago. And I remember coming home one day, she was in the backyard hanging out the clothes and she was singing. Uh, and uh, she always used to sing around the house and I thought it was rather nice. And I had with me a friend, his nickname was Lucky. He, he was about 11 too and he came around the backyard and saw her singing and hanging out the clothes and he started laughing. And he, he wasn't being mean, he, he thought it was really funny. And she turned around and saw him laughing at her singing and she started laughing at him laughing. And uh, it was just such a lovely little moment and it, it always stays with me and it gives me sort of happy and sad feelings at the same time. A beautiful mix for a Sunday morning. Paul Jennings, thanks again. And here it is. Hi, Lily. Hi, Lo. A Song of Love is a sad song indeed. That was High Lily, High Low, uh, the version featured in the film Lily, starring Leslie Caron, the music by Bronislaw Kaper and lyrics by Helen Deutsch. And, of course, it was chosen by iconic children's author and our guest on The Year That Made Me Today, Paul Jennings. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.